Welcome to the Dakota Town Hall Podcast, a political podcast platform based in Western South Dakota. Over the coming episodes, you'll hear from candidates and the issues that affect you in the upcoming 2020 election. Welcome to this episode of Dakota Town Hall from the Home Slice Media Group. It's also brought to you by Elevate Rapid City. Today, we are meeting with Mike Diedrich, candidate for District 34 Senate. In the Dakota Town Hall series, each candidate will receive the same questions presented to them in the same order. The candidates have not received these questions in advance. The questions are based on issues from candidate campaigns and from current events. Mike, would you introduce yourself? Well, my name is Mike Diedrich. I'm the candidate for the Senate in District 34, a Republican. District 34 is West Rapid City and a little part of northwestern North Rapid City. I'm a, a Rapid City born and raised. Uh, I married my far better half, Connie, who was also Rapid City born and raised. She was a raider and I was a cobbler. <laughs> <laughs> and we got married and our boys uh, grew up as raiders. All right. So, you, so she won that one, huh? Yeah, she won that one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and so I've been in, engaged in the community for all of my life, ever, even back in when we were Boy Scouts and youth groups and in college. And then after I returned from USD and went to work here at the city, I got engaged on community boards uh, in our church groups, uh, volunteering for things, helping where you could, and have continued that. It's just, it's just one, of the, one of the things that I do. It's part of me. Good deal. So the big question is, why are you running? I'm running to make a difference for South Dakota. I'm running for the future of South Dakota. Uh, I, I served previously when I was younger, and then our two boys came along, and I, and I chose not to run and serve in the Senate for a while or in the legislature for a while, and now they're gone, and, and I still have that commitment to making South Dakota a great place to live, to keep South Dakota a great place to live. That's a big-time commitment, isn't it? Yes, it 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 takes it's a lot more time than just the days you're in session. It it's really a all year round job, and but I love it because it entails working with people in the community, talking to people, talking to business, talking to people in uh, counseling and all the different professions, and talking about things that the legislature could do to make their daily lives better. And sometimes that's uh, helping to eliminate or reduce unnecessary regulatory barriers. Sometimes it's passing laws, making adjustments in laws that address situations that weren't contemplated or unintended consequences of laws that have been passed. Okay. Well, you were telling me one earlier about uh, helping out people with uh, in, in bad situations. Just explain a little bit about that. Well, uh, one of the bills that I sponsored that I had drafted in was prime sponsor on, and it passed through the legislature, addressed uh, domestic violence victims. And the, the information came to me through local domestic violence groups uh, in conversation. And the situation where someone is a victim of domestic violence and they have to move, they get a restraining order or and they have a court documents to show that they're domestic violence. Yep, to protect themselves. To, the, the restraining orders to protect themselves from the other person. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the situation uh, that we address is the victim. Okay, yeah. And so a victim, here's an example. 
victim living in an apartment building uh, gets abused by her uh, spouse or mate and gets a restraining order against that person and has a reduced income or support for the for the household and sometimes a lot of times there's children involved in that and needs to move to a safer place they often have a lease though also and the lease has penalties uh, if you terminate early and the bill we passed and we worked with the uh, property owners and the landlords groups as well it addresses that situation it allows someone who has a, a court protection order to protect them and their kids or their family to terminate a lease early without having to pay the early termination fees. And they're still responsible for any damage that may occur in that dwelling, mm-hmm. and, but they don't have an obligation to continue rent. So sometimes those victims are put in a position where they're short on resources and they have to make a choice between groceries and paying rent. And when they have a, a termination penalty like that, that just compounds that situation and it's, just, it's not healthy, it's not good for the children, and it's the right thing to do to make them safe. Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, not trying to tie those together, but the next question is explain your position on the Second Amendment. Oh, I'm a strong supporter of the Second Amendment. Um, I, I enjoy using firearms at the shooting range and to hunt, and it's been a family. It's a South Dakota tradition. I, I believe that the Second Amendment needs to be strong and needs to be protected. Okay, good deal. Um, COVID seems to be on everybody's mind lately. Um, has the state taken the correct stance on COVID, and what, if anything, would you change? Well, during the last legislative session, we addressed some uh, COVID bills. It came in the last few weeks of the session when COVID was becoming more a reality. And we made some tweaks that gave the sec- uh, the Department of Health, the Secretary of the Department of Health, some authority to do some things there and to allow local governments to do some things. And we didn't authorize them to do everything. Some of it might have uh, didn't have enough guidelines or guideposts to it. But we did make some improvements there. The, if the question is, should, should the state mandate any type of behavior, I think that uh, the state has done the right thing. I think that individual choice is correct. The science and facts show that masking is important. And masking, hand washing, all of the CDC guidelines are very effective in, in slowing the spread, which, which uh, allows us time to f- deal with the vaccine and deal with the treatment and not have uh, overcapacity surges in the hospitals and the healthcare clinics. And I think that the governor and the secretary of health have on their website show the CDC guidelines. They, they show the, uh, the information related to masking and hand washing. They promote it on the radio. I think that shutting down would, if we shut down, so there's different levels of, of intervening in, in COVID. One would be mandatory masking. Mm-hmm. That's an individual liberty question and a personal responsibility question. And as you may see, more and more people are electing to do that because they're learning more and more about the spread of this virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as far as shutting down business, uh, closing 
certain types of businesses, regulations like that, uh, that would ha have such a negative impact on the economy. And we saw that because a lot of his businesses didn't have a choice when people just quit going out. Yeah. And, and there were a lot of small businesses that went bankrupt that we don't see on Main Street anymore mm -hmm. or in our communities. And that impact was, was uh, very hard. And as, as people started going out safely and protection was in and restaurants, the takeout orders were a great way to start. And then as they got their arms around how to protect uh, people being on premises, that, that worked out well. The other part that the state is uh, dealing with is the distribution of the $1.25 billion dollars. And so there's a question, I would ask the question, are those funds being utilized fast enough and in the best ways? And in that case, I think we were a little slow in getting those dollars out. And in fact, the uh, deadline to apply for those funds under the program that the legislature and the governor put together during the special session is this Friday. Oh. We only have until... December 31st, to disperse those funds. And so we need to be pragmatic. I have some concerns that the application process, intended to be very simple, may have set some thresholds and maybe some metrics that aren't realistic when it comes to small businesses or even, even medium and large businesses and, and in the healthcare area as well. Yeah, the local government side worked out well. The dollars got put in the right places. That was good. Education dollars got put in the right places. But when it comes to helping our, our businesses and our entrepreneurs, I think we're going to have to make some tweaks along the way uh, because I think we're going to find out that enough businesses couldn't make those metrics that the funds aren't going to be dispersed. And so we need to keep our finger on that pulse and, and open it up more if it isn't being distributed in a meaningful way. So what happens to those dollars that aren't being dis dispersed then? Is that just... Well, until December 31st, they stay in the state pool okay. and, and they can be shifted. They don't have to, it doesn't have to be $400 million for business if, if it requires more and there's not money going into another area. Uh, there is enough, not enough applications or need for it. That money could go to supplement that four hundred million, or if four hundred million was more than it needed, and the excess in the in the business grant pool could could be utilized in a different way by the state for local government, for education, for health care, and uh, so it's it's a flexible pool. But it all has to be whatever's not utilized by the end of of this calendar year will revert to the federal government, and, and then it'll probably go into uh, being dispersed elsewhere. Sure. sure. Well, that's interesting. <clears throat> um, we have three ballot measures on this ballot. One is initiative, I'm sorry, initiated measure 26, which is for legalized marijuana for medical use. One is the constitutional amendment A, which is legalizing marijuana for recreational use. And constitutional amendment B, which legalized sports betting in Deadwood and on reservation or tribal reservation casinos. What is your position on these ballot measures? Well, on 2026, 20, the medical marijuana, that is an area that science isn't settled 
you'll find physicians and scientists on both sides of that issue. And still no studies, right? There, there still aren't any clear, clear studies. There's no uh, agreed to or, or uh, universal science behind it. Although there are products, uh, mm-hmm. uh, distiller, distilled type products out of the marijuana and the hemp plant that do provide medical relief. And there's a plenty of uh, anecdotal stories sure, yeah. of people who have either themselves or family or friends um, have utilized it to relieve uh, pain or uh, create hunger. When mm-hmm. you know, So like, for example, oncology and cancer area, uh, part of that treatment for that makes one lose their appetite. And and so there are people who have gone to states where medical marijuana was available, and they said it helped them uh, relieve the nauseousness and uh, resume the appetite, so they could conti- at least be interested in nourishing their self. Mm-hmm. And so, so the medical marijuana, uh, I think that based on based on the scientific knowledge, I, th- I think that will pass. Based on that, and there's a good strong argument for that. I think um, the recreational marijuana, that one I have a problem with, it, it, from the aspect of putting it into the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that it's it's necessarily a constitutional issue. Yeah, alcohol is it correct? No, alcohol is yeah. not in there, and and a lot of there are a lot of things that aren't in there that are important to society, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I don't think the Constitution should be that amended to do things like that or, or other things. I think we really need to be thoughtful in what we do with our Constitution. So I don't, I don't, I, I'm, I would oppose that because I don't think it's an appropriate thing to put into the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Sports betting. Sports betting, so I read the cases on that and I followed that for several years. Um, and Sports betting is, you know, it's, it's everywhere. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, you can, you can sports bet in South Dakota right now. <laughs> and, and, and you probably still can ha- have uh, live face-to-face bookies in South Dakota now, although it's not legal. No. Um, but yeah. I know a guy. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, it's a common, it's a common thing to wager on sports. And it's not viewed, uh, by society so much as being as bad as as maybe other forms of gambling. Mm -hmm. I think it will help uh, our South Dakota uh, Deadwood casinos in the sense that it's it's more part of a a gaming experience, a destination experience. And so if if you've ever been into a sports betting area of a casino, uh, they have, there's multiple, multiple big screen monitors showing different games. And it's, and it's kind of like, a theater seating uh, with the food and beverage service up front, huh. and and so it's it's kind of a entertainment thing. I think the food and beverage revenue would probably exceed the wagering uh, win. That almost sounds like a sports bar in some aspects. Of well, it, huh? Yeah, well, it, that's what it is. It is. Yeah. Except <laughs> it's, if it's the betting. if the if that amendment passes, then it would be a legal uh, legal place to do what happens in our sports bars right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not with the establishment, but right. between friends, and yeah. and and also you can do it online. I, 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 it's my understanding you can get on your phone and and set up an account and place wagers on games that are being played 
in other places. Hmm. So I, I don't know. I've never tried that. It seems risky <laughs> to me. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, I would, I wouldn't <laughs> be comfortable putting out my credit card or whatever it was to, and, and tr- I couldn't trust anybody to do that. I don't wager anyway, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I like the entertainment side more of the it, music. In the surrounding states, several of the surrounding states have sports betting. Is that correct? I heard Nebraska just passed it. Yeah, Nebraska did it. Um, you know, I don't know for sure if Minnesota does. I, uh, I would, I would, I would think they would, uh, just considering the uh, political makeup of the state, and and they have you know big sports. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Although yeah. some some people would joke and say. When are they going to get a professional football team? But (laughs) that's not me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thanks thanks for the answers on those. Um, In a a 2019 report published by the U.S. News and World Report, South Dakota ranked well at 10th in the nation for higher education, but ranked 23rd for K-12 education. What can the South Dakota legislature do to improve the K through 12 education in the state? Well, I think that there are a lot of things that can be done. Uh, some of them are, are appropriation related money. Others are, are things that just need to, to occur. For example, uh, collaboration and efficiency. The buying power of all the schools in South Dakota uh, they they should work together on finding ways to save money in that way. There's a lot of leverage with all those schools, even though they're small. There's there's leverage there. IT South Dakota, what we can do in the legislature is is expand the broadband mm-hmm. so that we do have good broadband signal in all of our communities, including the rural communities, and that then would enable those communities to do um, virtual classrooms. In, in certain subjects, and so you could you could do use the expertise of uh, and experience of teachers elsewhere by routing it through, and, and especially in some schools, there are still schools that have uh, multiple grades in one classroom. Sure. In our yeah. rural rural state, but then to do that, we also then the state and the school districts need to find a way to provide the resources necessary to those school districts and to those teachers and the training and the support so that it'll work well. And so the state should be a part of that. They need to do the broadband. It would be good for us to do help with the support and the IT side of it. Um, we, the recruiting and retention of teachers is, will always be an issue. They're, they're, they're like healthcare workers. There's not enough in the in the nation maybe not in the world uh, for the need so the education process to get a teaching degree there we should look at the programs and look at uh, making those flexible making the curriculum flexible enough and and accessible enough and affordable so that Someone who may want to needs to get that degree because they want to try use that as their profession, pursue that. It's a, it's a, something that they have a passion for. That if they're working and they can't just go to college for four years or two years, whatever it might take to get them up to meeting the requirements for that certification, that they could do it over time, and and again maybe using virtual or having utilizing our uh, university center out by. Watiki, mm-hmm. and u- utilizing existing resources to make it 
um, more more favorable or more um, easy for someone to make a transition in their career, or even someone just starting out. And and sometimes uh, folks, uh, people who want to be teachers, are also not also just working, but they may be taking care of family members, mm-hmm. you know, parents or grandparents, and they just need to have that flexibility, and it needs to be affordable. Yeah, well. College has gone up. I, you know, the, mm-hmm. my kids going to school. It's it's a lot more expensive than I do. Sarah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, increased. Well, the idea of, of pooling uh, buying power that's that's interesting to me because you know, um, obviously Sioux Falls and Rapid City are some of the largest districts, and and they can can have the smaller school systems join with them and be able to buy more efficiently. It's a good idea. Yeah, other other ideas related to that are are efficiency within the administration and 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 dealing with HR and, and with uh, continuing training for the teachers and in the uh, really the administrative side of that. And so, could we have some centralized or regionalized? resources for the administration of education that would free up the school district's uh, dollars to put more into teachers and whatever their physical resources or what they need on the ground in their building. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow, that's, that's cool. Uh, in the same report, the economy of South Dakota ranks 27th. Uh, what can the legislature do to help improve the economy in the state? <laughs> well, for one thing, edu- we just talked about it. education is really important to the economy, uh, K through 12 and, and post high school and, and even um, pre-K. Hmm. I mean, it's all, it's all part of economic development. So for economic development, it includes education, it includes workforce development, it includes affordable housing, it includes uh, transportation, and it includes infrastructure. And so those are all different elements of economic development. So workforce development, I, I feel the same way about what I just said about education in general, uh, related to education for um, skilled and non-skilled workers. So it could be uh, WDT, it could be School of Mines, but the the need for professions for the students. I think the industry should really provide their proje- projections. And I know that our education system works with the industry, but really, yeah. as, as far as it relates to workforce development and economic development, it would be really good to have a good part, a strong partnership and collaboration where the, the, all the industries that are important in South Dakota or that we want to have in South Dakota that we would look at what would their workforce needs be in five years, ten years, two years, mm-hmm. and then make sure that, that our schools offer the programs necessary to train those people to, to have those opportunities if they want them. And again, it needs to be accessible and affordable. So I think industry and education need to partner up more when it comes to workforce development. So affordable housing if we get workers, so if we, if we don't grow our own, we have to recruit them from somewhere. Right, and have to have some place to live. <laughs> and, yeah, and they need a place to live, and it needs to be affordable. And we have, we see a lot of apartments being built in, in the 
Hills area, mm-hmm. and and we have a very low unemployment rate. So there's jobs, and there could be there's people looking for. Uh, employees to work in the service industry, the construction industry, and the healthcare industry, even in education, there's support people, uh, support staff that go and that they need to use also. So it's not all four-year degree people. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and the housing market is so is pretty darn tight, but it must be. Um, we must be heading down the road to filling it, but I know we're not fulfilling that need. But they're, as they're going up, so it needs to be good housing that's affordable. That someone making a, a, a low medium income and and also for high income. I mean, the housing uh, housing market for the higher income people is is really small in in our area as well. Mm-hmm. And so we just need to provide quality housing that's affordable. And and that then relate kind of ties into the transportation side, <laughs> because if now you have a job and you got a place to live, but you got to get to work, and so our, our rapid transit system, there I know they're doing a study looking at different locations, mm-hmm. uh, different routes and different pickup points, and that needs to uh, really I think the city ultimately I'm not sure on over what period of time, but we'll need to put some dollars into expanding that. And they really need to also collaborate with Box Elder because Box Elder is a very growing community and yeah. its, its uh, city limit is up against the Rapid City city limit. Mm-hmm. And I was talking with Box Elder uh, city officials the other day and, we, and we talk, one of the things we talked about was the possibility of having a, a terminal public transit terminal located out on that edge there so that if box elder had a system they could go to the terminal and and, and passengers could transfer to the rapid cities uh, system well that's interesting and in the population of box elder over the last 10 years of what exploded yeah It, it, it has it's really growing and it's growing a lot because of the raider uh, B twenty one bomber, but it's but they're growing not only because of that. They have growth that exceeds that. That's not their only driver of growth out there. Yeah, which then uh, you know that kind of leads us a little bit into uh, the healthcare side. So you got the people who are qualified for jobs. They found a place to live. They've got transportation to and from. Uh, they want to have good education. We have that, and then healthcare. There needs to be accessible healthcare points for those folks too, and um, that's an that's an important area to deal with too. Is the training of healthcare workers for not only our area but for the entire state as well. So you get all those things put together, and then you throw in how's our water supply? What's it going to look like in thirty years? And one of the things that that uh, I've looked at and, and discussed uh, is related to tapping uh, the water supply from the Missouri River, hmm. like the Mini Wachoni project, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. only it'd be a bigger scale to get water out here to the Black Hills and to, well, to West, West River in general. I mean, yeah. every, probably every community along the way could use a really stable water supply. For economic development and for our area, uh, a, a good, stable, long-term water supply you know, backup plan, all of that would is is important too to attract industries. And then finally, <laughs> <laughs> I like economic development because it, in, it incorporates everything. 
Mm-hmm. Our quality of life, really, what I just talked about was really our quality of life. And one of, the, one of the really great things that we have in our quality of life is the School of Mines. And the, the resources that they have there, the respect they have there, the alumni, the connection in the industries, the, their reputation in, in, in their professionalism, in their education, um, they are a great resource. And they need a new building for their minerals technology. They need a new classroom for that because that's what will attract students in that area. It will attract industry partners, and it'll lead to collaborations, businesses, and spinoffs. And so, for example, School of Mines works with SDSU related to bioprocessing projects. And so the physical facilities are in Brookings, and they house offices, and they'll, they're going to do a building, and it'll house actual processing plant for bio. So it's, and that's really important in South Dakota. So what, what am I talking about, bioprocessing? Yeah. It's, it's like um, ethanol. Oh, okay. okay. And, and it's important for our area out here because this bioprocessing can also take uh, trees, timber, uh, pine needles, mm-hmm. pine cones, uh, forest, forest waste, that's natural, not not something not not we're not thinking about cutting down much cutting trees. down the trees, but it's the stuff that's on the floor's floor slash piles. You see all those slash piles that have to get burned every so mm-hmm. often. Mm-hmm. Those slash piles could be turned into bioprocessed products, and so that's uh, expanding an industry out here that's clean. It's helping clean up our forests. It's finding a, a repurposing for products and reducing the fire danger. And reducing fire danger. And so School of Mines works with them. They partner on that. But the School of Mines really does more of the research and, and a, lot of the, a lot of the student side. And that's an example of a collaboration that is good for us out here. We don't get a building for that, but we have, have the resources, the uh, technology and the intelligence resources to help with that. With the mineral building, mineral technology building, we would really, that would ramp that up to an even higher level in a, in a different sector within the engineering industry. Hmm. Interesting. Now, back to money a little bit. Okay. Um, there never seems to be enough money to cover everything that people would like the state to cover. What changes to the state budget would you like to see? Well, that's a great question, um, <laughs> and I, the changes. Well, one thing that I, I don't believe is will be politically possible, or uh, over time even, will be an income tax, a state income tax to raise revenues, so mm-hmm. that the state could redistribute it. And uh, South Dakota did have an income tax, and it got repealed, and that was decades and decades ago. And it comes up, and it and it's just not people don't want it in South Dakota. And and part of the economic development is, is a more tax friendly environment as well. And and so, I don't. People might talk about that, but I don't see that as a as a realistic solution. Some of us are proud that we don't have an income tax. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I agree. I don't. I I prefer to not have an income tax, a state income tax, on me, but. Uh, and I, most everybody I talk to feels that way. Uh, but it is a source of funding, additional yes. funds, and that's been at, talked about for education primarily. Mm. Uh, but I don't think that's a realistic solution, at least in 
in the future, near future. No. What would I change? One thing I think, and there's, there's nothing, no one big thing that can be done as far as, as far as trying to adjust the current appropriations process or, or what money is spent on. Um, one of the things that has been suggested is take a hard look at sales tax exemptions. Mm. And there's hundreds of sales tax exemptions. Um, they, they started out smaller, but over the years they've increased significantly. So probably 20, 30 years ago, for example, um, the, the music teacher who, or the, who taught my son Suzuki violin lessons, uh, they they got together and they went to appear and they lobbied for a sales tax exemption for them because they were a small business and they were doing a cultural thing and um, essentially nonprofit and and the same would happen with all kinds. I mean that's just one example of multiple exemptions. So it's a it's a source of look of potential revenue to look at all those sales tax exemptions. The problem is is once you start uh, taking and looking at them individually, they might not make sense and the revenue isn't much, but collectively they can make a big impact. But also collectively, they will, it will create a, a very uh, strong political debate mm, Yeah, um, because it will affect a lot of people and what they do. Um, the streamlining state government is important, and, and uh, Senator Partridge uh, was a big uh, pusher for the lean process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that that works. I know that works. I've seen it work. I've seen it work at uh, Monument Health when it was regional health, and I know it works on in government and it works in business. It's a, it's a really good process to co- constantly improve the way processes and the way things work, which ultimately with the goal of Im- improving the the end result plus efficiency savings. And yeah. so that's a path that we're going down and maybe that might be one of the things we should ramp up to a little higher level for the state of South Dakota. Cause that's still going department by department through the state, isn't it? Yes. It's not been through all the departments. No. Yeah. And, and now my wife's uncle used to work for the state and they were one of the first departments that had the lean system implemented on them to mm-hmm. use that term. Um, and it sounds like a scary process. And I think he was a little nervous at first but after they got through the process, he thought it was great because it made his job easier. It made their department, their it was Bureau of Information and Technology. I think it changed mm-hmm. that name, but uh, made them much more efficient, saved money, made their jobs easier. It was just great all the way around. Yes, the lean the lean is uh, not designed to just cut costs. The lean is designed, the primary goal of lean is to do it better, do it more efficiently and with better outcomes. So you can do more better mm-hmm. outcomes. And along the way you save money. So it's, <laughs> it, you know, it'd be good for, for the persons in South Dakota who need to, to access those departments for assistance on whatever it might be, to have it be the most efficient and, and simple and, and fast and, and effective outcomes. So I, I think the lean process is, has potential to overall in the end make a bigger, bigger impact than people realize. Why are we going through it kind of slow? Is it just because it, it does kind of disrupt things for a short time or what, what's going yeah. on there? Well, it does. If, 
kind of at the core of a lean process. You'd take a department or a segment of a department or a process. It could be as simple as one process. Yeah, like how when the call comes in, how does it get to whom it needs to answer it and how quickly do they answer it and, and how, how do they have the right information or resources available, uh, you know, all the way through following up to make sure that whatever the, the, the cause of the initiation of the, of the request for help or a product or service, uh, all the way through to making sure it was all done right. So to do that, you have to, you have to sit in a room with people who do it. Mm-hmm. You also have to sit in a room with people who don't do it. Mm-hmm. And, and then you have to look at the process and the, the flow, the process flow, and raise questions on how could it be done better. And, and, and so the fresh eyes are good because they say, well, why, why can't we couldn't just do this first or instead of or do we need that? Whereas sometimes when you're so close to it, you you don't see that. You're, you see more granular. And so it kind of takes an, a, a big picture view and then a granular view. And the outcome typically is a, is a much better process. And but you also have to tweak them too. You know, sure. nothing nothing is good forever. <laughs> if we don't uh, improve ourselves all the, constantly, we're yeah we're not going to be as efficient as we think we are. Well, it's a big project, but I think it's going to be in the end probably have to by the time we get through it all probably have to start back over again. But um, I think it's going to be great. So. All right. Uh, explain your position on Medicaid expansion. Medicaid expansion is, uh, it, I think, would be a good thing for South Dakota. Medicaid expansion would be good for business in South Dakota. Um, Medicaid expansion would help have healthier families. So what do I mean by all that? Uh, the, the federal program has the mat- higher matching level for states that expand Medicaid and, and 90%, I believe it is at this yeah. point, is... Uh, 10% from the state. Yeah, cost, the cost would be 90% federal government would cover that. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that um, we, we oftentimes think in terms of the federal government, I don't want to pay any more taxes, they're spending too much money on too many programs. Uh, at the same time, we have a lot of agricultural subsidies, and there are there are a lot of federal program, a lot of federal funding to local programs. Uh, so it's, it's it would be good because it will would make healthcare accessible to those who have the lowest levels of income. So it would expand it from 100% of the federal poverty level to 138%. There's already a 5% adjustment in there, so really the effective increase. Uh, it would really be at 133%. But because of this federal adjustment and FMAP, that's getting more technical than you want to be. But uh, it, it's, it would make it accessible to more people. So that's, that's not much income. That, that could, I don't have the federal poverty levels in front of me. I should have, should have taken a look at that. Uh, well, you didn't know the question was coming up. No, I know I didn't. But, but actually, actually I, I, you know, I think about that. Uh, Medicaid expansion, and I think about it, accessibility to healthcare because that's really critical, and it's really cr- critical for business because if you have that access to healthcare for those low-income uh, wage earners, and we have a lot of temporary workers or seasonal workers in South Dakota, construction, ag, tourism, service, 
So there's a lot of people that fall in that category, and they don't have employers that can ha- afford or offer an employee health plan. And so if, if they were making such a low income over the year that they would qualify for Medicaid for part of the time, that would help them remain in South Dakota. And if they knew that, if we're trying to recruit that level of workers, and we want all levels, but if, if we're, we're trying to recruit those workers to South Dakota and, and they, have, they see what we offer for wages and, they, and they, uh, then they look at the option for health care, and if it's the same thing in Wyoming, mm-hmm. uh, they'll pick between the two. If Wyoming has, or Minnesota or Nebraska has a Medicaid option available to them and the salary's about the same, they'll go where they can get some access to health care. And all of those states do have that, do yeah. they not? Yeah. 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 Montana does. Um, the, uh, the reason it'd be good for business is we'd have a healthy workforce. There'd be less no-shows. There'd be less uh, no-shows because of uh, seeking health care or feeling bad. Their, their illnesses would be less acute because it would be preventative. And so it wouldn't... It wouldn't be gone as long if they did have some health issues. Uh, the it would be good for business because if the clinics and the providers and the dentists and you know all all of the think of all the things to the broad spectrum of healthcare, if they knew that that population uh, needed the services and they and they would be re, they would be reimbursed for providing those services, then they would know that they could invest in hiring the additional staff, support staff or professionals, and, and invest in the equipment necessary, uh, maybe invest in a larger office space, a bigger lease or, or expansion of some sort. If they knew they had, they could depend on that income, they would be able to invest in the business. If they invest in their business, they're hiring more people. If they're hiring more people, we have more uh, income uh, and yeah, that's being used in South Dakota, and more it just supports more and more. I mean, everything from stopping at your drive-through coffee to your grocery store to buying a pickup. So, would you support that? Uh, you know, some states have a, a clause in there. If the federal government changes that ratio quite a bit, then they relook at it. Would you support something like that for Medicaid? Well, the the uh, Medicaid expansion program that Governor Dugard was in favor of had a provision in it at the end to address the concern about funding. What happens if the federal government pulls the funds? And then can the state afford that $300 million or whatever it might be? Um, so I had a provision in there that said if the federal government reduces its, its uh, support of the expansion, then the law passed by the legislature would have sunsetted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that was a way to deal with the political concern, and, and st- but still be pragmatic about it. So I don't know. I listened to the uh, debate, presidential debate last night, and I don't know that there's a really a identified plan for sustaining health care in the United States. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's, they all, they, they, we all, everybody has the same goal of access, affordability. Mm-hmm. Uh, just how you get that done is a different, there's different opinions on that. And, but I don't, I don't know that Medicaid would be on the chopping block expansion. Okay. I guess I, heck, I don't know. 
Yeah. I'm like everybody else who watches you. You just kind of guess at what's going on, and you have some informed opinions, and some are just gut. Yeah, yeah. You never know what the future holds. So um, what specific issues would you like to solve for the people in your district? Well, in, in you know, our district, which is, is Western Rapid City, but really it's, it's, to me it's the Black Hills area, Primarily, our Rapid City business needs are the ones I'm aware of, but I know they're working with other legislators and other parts of the Black Hills that our business concerns are all kind of the similar. And so I would work with everybody to try to get a good package together on, on uh, meeting the needs of our constituents. So the things I learn about uh, are if, by working with constituents and attending, being engaged in the community Education is important. Um, there's a big movement for uh, pre-K education. That's and that and that's been more. You know, that's something that they've been talking about for a few years now, and it, it happens. It's just not really organized, and and the, there isn't a central funding source for that. And I don't know that there ever will be. And, and 34 has a lot of families living we, there. We have a lot of families, and yes, yeah, it's a primarily residential. Yeah. Yes. Um, people are, are always, they're always concerned about public safety. You know, are we, how do we make sure that our law enforcement and our first responders, uh, and are, are healthy, both, both, uh, stress-wise and financial and have the resources to do their jobs right? I think that's important to the people, and I know it's important to the people in District 34, uh, the roads, you know, infrastructure, which brings us to the broadband again, mm-hmm. and that and that can, that's important out here because there's a lot of areas in the Black Hills where you don't have cell coverage. Yeah, and uh, and it's important in the eggs on the egg side of the state uh, or in our ranching area, uh, but mostly in the egg side where they are doing the uh, the new technology for farming where things are run by GPS and it's it's really fascinating how they can. They can know and measure sitting in their office in the farmhouse. They still have to get out and do some do their hard work, but I mean they can they can tell by tagging cows. They can know what the cow's temperature is. They know what how much they're eating. If they they need more water, if they have uh, some indication of an illness that they can go take care of, they know what the fertilizing where they need to fertilize in in the field. It's not the same everywhere, but they can tell through this technology. Mm-hmm. It's really uh, amazing. Yeah, for irrigation, it's phenomenal. So technology and, and, and infrastructure, I think, is important for our folks, too. And I th- our people, I think our community in general, but there's, there's a real um, appreciation for the arts, for, for the performing arts and the fine arts. And you know, we can't, we can't f- and the, even, even the museums and you know, non-interactive and interactive, but there's... A, a real, we can never forget that we need to do what we can to help the arts continue to grow and to to have opportunities to teach about what art means and how to express yourself and to expose our youth to the types of careers that they may have in arts if they want. Could be everything from owning a gallery to being a, a performer mm-hmm. or an artist, and so we sometimes that doesn't get talked about in 
our in our, a lot of our political discussions when we're campaigning because we're going going after businesses and farming and yeah day, yeah. But the quality of life is is what I guess kind of summarize that one. The quality of life is important to the people of Rap City in our community. Okay. Next question is very very similar. What specific issues would you want to solve for the people in the state? And you kind of touched about you know five G or not five G but broadband and yes. Um, the, the, you know they're common. We have we have common issues even though we're we're. Our terrain is different. Uh, it is, to me, again, it's the infrastructure, the broadband. What are we doing for the future for education? How do we how do we develop a workforce and provide the opportunities for future generations? I mean, we've grown up here with great quality of life and great opportunities, uh, and I think that it's our obligation to ensure that the future generations have the same. Or, or better opportunities and quality of life. So it's education. It, we can work on education, but, but I have to engage our colleagues on the eastern part of the state to get them to buy in because it is 105 persons in the legislature and the governor. Mm -hmm. And you only need them if it's not an appropriation, uh, a special appropriation, you, you need a majority and the governor. Uh, if it's a special appropriation, you need two-thirds out of both houses and the governor. And, and uh, so th the basic issues are the same. Economic development, education, infrastructure, technology. Those are, those are things that we want to solve. Those are things that we need to work on. We really need to get the broadband. I get, if you can't tell already, I'm, <laughs> I just really believe that's important in so many ways. Mm -hmm. From the kids to elder care and everything in between. So how has your experience been in uh, being in the legislature, the first go-around that you mentioned when, you're, when your guys were little, to now, where is there big differences in what goes on in Pier, or is it uh, same problems with new names? or, or <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it's actually both. Um, it, there's certain recurring themes. I've never been to a legislative session, either as a member or as a visitor, observer, where aid to education was not a key issue. You know, some years it's bigger than others. Um, there are often, then uh, the university side, the, high, the higher education is, is recurring. Local governments are constantly wanting, and justifiably so, to have... Uh, the ability to have more local control and, and less strings attached. And we say that about the federal government on a state level. Yeah. You know? yeah. and, and so uh, that's fair. And, and the local decisions are the best because that's where the impact is made. That's where they can tell if they are making a difference in the lives of the people that are affected. So th there's always a tug and pull on that. Um, I think that natural resources, water, to me is a big issue. I, you know, I think about our water supply for Rapid City, the beauty of the hills, the beauty of, of our water sources. And, and then you look at the future growth uh, projections and industry, if, if depending on the type of industry that, that we are managed to attract to South Dakota, the water needs are going to continue to be big. And mm -hmm. so that's why I, I like thinking about the Missouri River and how to tap that resource. 
well, we've all been through drought years where Pactola looks pretty darn small. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's like when you, uh, when we were kids, we'd jump off that rock off the dam, the little island there, and, and then you get into the drought years and you look and you think, holy cow, I'm glad I wasn't jumping in that spot. <laughs> uh, that, that, that next rock was a little closer to the surface than I thought. <laughs> but maybe that's life, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, the number of homeless people in Rapid City has, has really grown over the years. And some feel this is tied to mental health. Uh, what can the state do to help the mental health of some of our citizens in need? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I've been working on that a lot. Uh, I've, uh, a few decades ago, I was one of the boards I served on uh, was the West River Mental Health Board which we, we grew, and, and uh, subsequently, subsequently we turned it into a behavior management. Mm. And I've, so I've always had a continuing interest in, in awareness and, and passion for the good that, that, that all of those providers do for our community. And uh, so in the last three years, last three, this is the fourth summer, we've had... Uh, interim study committees on behavioral health, mental health in, for the legislature. And so I participated on those. I chaired one one year. And we're looking at what are the resources, what are the barriers, where are the bottlenecks, where are the needs, how can those needs be satisfied. And over the last two or three years, we have passed bills that have come out of those committees that have cleared the way, kind of set the foundation. Uh, uh, we took care of telepsych, uh, uh, you know, telehealth uh, for psychology or psychiatric care. Mm -hmm. uh, we've passed a bill this year, and the rules should be out. Uh, applications should be in that, that allow uh, more local agencies to have a little, some less, lesser um, regulatory barriers to caring for people. So, for example... Um, if a person needs behavioral health, mental health counseling, if they're a threat to themselves or others, and if they, uh, are, if they present to the emergency department or to the behavioral health unit or to a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a sociologist, um, they, they could be, they need to be uh, reviewed and screened by a qualified mental health professional, and uh, and that can determine whether they should be admitted or or might even need to go to Yankton. They may be a voluntary admission, or they could be an involuntary commitment. And so we addressed how do we make that quicker? Because there were people that were being held for a couple of days or longer, even for that determination. And, and the law is pretty clear that you you, you, can, you have to have now with the law we ch the way we change this they have to have that review within 24 hours and then a follow up. Um, but we also made sure that the requirements to be qualified to do that uh, survey or that exam that screening uh, that more professionals with experience could provide that service. So there would be resources to do it. Then we found that if someone needed to be either voluntarily or involuntarily admitted to the Human Services Center in Yankton, and, and that's the state 
hospital for her behavioral health or mental health. Uh, and we're one of the few states that even have one left, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, the bottleneck of people waiting to go there, and, and especially in the involuntary commitments, which is more common, um, got to be so big, so so long, because there weren't enough beds open in Yankton. And the reason there aren't enough beds open in Yankton is they don't have enough staff to staff their beds. Oh, boy. They could open up another uh, between 30 and 60 beds. The facilities there, they just don't have enough staff. So the result is, is those patients are here. They're either in the Monument uh, Behavioral Health Unit West mm-hmm. or they're in uh, county jail. Oh. They're in custody. And, and then there's the transport problem. First, you got to get a bed, and then you, and then you got to transport them down there. And those are all costs that the county incurs, that the family incurs, um, insurance companies incur. When we found that if they, so there's about fifteen to seventeen hundred a year that go down to, that go down to Yankton, but a, a huge percentage of those folks. Uh, get stabilized. Sometimes it's just getting stabilized on their medication. Sometimes it's just getting uh, stabilized emotionally. And so a, a large percentage are discharged within five days. But because of the, the, the way the law works, that's where they have to go for an involuntary commitment. Uh, we're looking at, we passed a law that would allow a place like our uh, crisis care, where where they could you can check in, you can, but your license—the license for that business, uh, for that service—would only allow them to. Have, you could not have a patient or a person in there for more than 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And so we looked at it, and, and we said, "Well, they have the the staff. They know how to. They know how to uh, help stabilize and care for people that need that care at that point in time." You don't have a half a day of transport one way. Yeah, you don't have a half a day. And, and and if we're and we know that they're getting discharged from Yankton's, a lot of them, a big percentage of them within five days. Why can't? What are the barriers to allowing that facility that can only have someone for 24 hours? Why couldn't they have someone for 48 or 72? What are the needs? Mm-hmm. How do we make sure it's quality, safe care for that individual, mm-hmm. and and for the the, the staff and for the staff. And, and so how do we address those barriers? It's, it, so is it, do they, if you're there for more than 24 hours, do they have to have a nutritionist on staff because of some regulation? Do they have to have a certain level of fire uh, protection? Do they have to have a certain level of security? What are, out of all those things, what are, what are necessary and what really are just barriers? And so we changed it. So there are only three prior to this bill there are only three facilities that the state calls appropriate regional facility. That's a, a term, quote unquote. And, and one is in Rapid City, one is in north, uh, northeastern South Dakota, and the other one's in Sioux Falls. And so if someone needed to be involuntarily committed and there wasn't a bed in Yankton, they would get put into those inpatient facilities. If those inpatient facilities were filled up, they'd go into the county custody. And and then they'd wait. And, and the trauma of waiting without going through all the rest of the treatment or stabilization, initial stabilization, it just makes things worse. So why could not 
a 24-hour facility, be able to do it for 48 or 72 and get those people stable and, and people heal best when they're in the, when they're have support, when they're in their own community, mm -hmm. when things aren't uh, unknown. And so what, what are the barriers? And, and so we've, we changed that and it'll be interesting to see what facilities apply to be classified as a, an appropriate regional facility. So we get through the whole concept for behavioral health of regionalization. So I mentioned those three different areas where we have these facilities. Mm -hmm. Also concentration of the other areas of behavioral health that support that care. And we look at the resources. Well, maybe the resources that are put up, that are utilized on a statewide level should be regionalized so that where that activity occurs in those different regions, the providers and the community can decide the best way to use those resources and to optimize the resources they have to maybe recruit the resources they don't. And all of that then would take the pressure off HSC in Yankton, which is really where the, mo the most acute and the hardest to care for patients should be mm -hmm. uh, they, when they, we can't care for them in the community. But those who we can care for in the community, if we can take care of them here, we can create that access and, and eliminate that delay for those who really, really need that acute care. Yeah, well, it sounds like a good, good program. It'll save the county a lot of money. Oh, I imagine. Save the county a lot of costs, and, and it'll, it'll be good for the communities, too. And then also the, the, the family of the patients, too. I mean, that's got to be more mm -hmm. assuring that they're here or, you know, they're in the region rather than being shipped off and yes, yes, and or that, incarcerated. That would be horrible. That'd be that's, or be transported, uh, put on the van that's uh, hauling persons who are being transferred to the state penitentiary. But and you're having uh, mental health issues, and you have to ride on that across the state, and then get dropped at Yankton. I, I don't see how that it can be anything but traumatic. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and it is. You mentioned the families. That's really important. Uh, we heard stories in, over the years in these committees and on the floor of families who could not get their uh, child or their family member into one of those appropriate regional facilities because the, the capacity was full, partly because of the Yankton bottle up, mm -hmm. um, where they had to be cared for in Colorado. No. Or uh, Nebraska or Minnesota. And that's really tough on the families, not only emotionally, but resource-wise as well. Yeah. So we can, uh, we can have a healthier community when we, as we sort this out piece by piece. I'd like to see the governor include in her budget uh, the, uh, a one, maybe one-time funding to help the county. Maybe, maybe it'd be the care center or maybe it'd be a, a conversion of a building to provide uh, some beds to, for that short-term stabilization period. Of course, this year, everybody would like to see the governor put into her budget <laughs> some project that they, their yeah, community sure. needs. Yeah. And so, but, you know, we work on it. We're, we're always working on it. Well, you talked about that earlier. There's, a, there's never enough money for everything that people want the state to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, you know, health care is, is, is a big issue. So uh, we're, we're concluding here. Is there, would you like to make a, a closing statement? Or? Well, I, yeah, I want to thank you no, thank and you. Home Slice for 
doing this type of a forum so that we can communicate. Uh, I, I enjoy the, the live forums a lot because then you can have the give and take. Um, but so if, if someone's listening to this and they have questions or they have input, uh, please give me a call. I'm available. Um, my, you'll see my address on all the political uh, information, the, the postcards that you may be throwing into the garbage can faster than I do, and, uh, and I'm in the phone book. But so, hold on. What's that? <laughs> the phone book? Oh, it's just <laughs> there. Those museums I talked about have what they called phone books. <laughs> yes. So no, I, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to talk and 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 uh, let you know some of the things I stand for and some of the things I'm working to accomplish and some of the things we have accomplished. And I do this because uh, I learned from my father, uh, who. Uh, who, who died young, but he always told me it's a man's obligation to leave the wood pile higher than he found it. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, over time, and, and growing uh, in experience and wisdom too, I, it didn't take me too long to figure out what he really meant by that. And I understand, and that made me understand a lot of what he did. And I'm glad he included me in that because I, you know, I'm committed to our community. I love our community. We have the greatest community. We have the greatest people. I love South Dakota. And I want to make all of our people's lives better. And I want the future generations to have what we had. And so that's why I run. That's why I, I, I seek this office. I'm asking for the privilege of being the voice of and being a thoughtful leader for the people of District 34 and people of South Dakota. All right, Mike. Well, thanks for coming in and talking to us. Thank you.